man. What's going on, dude? Welcome back to the show. It's our, I don't know, I don't know how many times you've been on, but it's always a pleasure. What's going on with you? Yeah, I appreciate you having me back again. Um, no, I always enjoy these chats. So uh, what's going on? Uh, normal day-to-day things, I guess, you know, with all the things that we'll probably talk about on this episode about training and, and all that fun stuff. Yeah, you're my, you're my go-to. Hey, I need to have a really niche discussion about things that probably don't matter, but are intellectually stimulating about hypertrophy. And so let's get Brian on. Let's, we'll talk about it. Yeah. How do these episodes do compared to like the, the more generally acceptable, you know, macro tracking and stuff like that. They do exactly what you, you think they would do for the kind of person that, that enjoys this chat. I get multiple DMS of people that like, since I said you and I were going to podcast like a couple, like two weeks ago, I people like, Oh my God, I can't wait. I don't, they don't do as well, like total, total listens or like, yeah, let, yeah. actually the biggest is they don't get listened to as long. Cause I'm sure that we lose people sometimes, but, um, but I know for a fact for the person who's like excited about, you know, these topics or just being a smidge more nerdy about things that it really, it, for them, it is a, a key episode. And so I, I'm cool with that. And I, for my, for me, honestly, this podcast has always grown out of like just wanting to talk about this stuff myself. And so yeah. if, if this one gets lost on some people, you know, I, listen, we, we do, I, I think we do a good job making sure that we don't go too deep into the weeds and use too many deep, you know, intricate words that people don't know what they mean. And so, um, but yeah, I could understand if you're like, Hey, if you're, you're listening to this podcast for two minutes in and you're like, I don't give a shit about hypertrophy. I don't even know what hypertrophy means. Okay. Maybe we go back to another podcast and we circle back around to this one. Um, yeah, yeah. let's do, I think it's clutch to have, uh, to have both types of podcasts. You know, you can, you can go do the ones that you really like, and that's kind of what you've earned. Like your right to do these and then you have the ones that just reach more people and that's good too yep totally agree with that for sure and again you're hitting different audiences and that's fine let's um let's break down i made a couple of notes just like what we were going to talk about today we're going to do and there are a couple things i didn't i didn't you're not privy to that i just thought of in the last like hour or so but we're going to be talking about progressing across a mesocycle like setting up a mesocycle and progressing across a mesocycle and we're going to look at two distinct ways of doing that we're going to compare like in air quotes, like the RP Renaissance periodization, Dr. Mike style where, and I'll just lay the groundwork and we'll get into it. But that style would be like in week one, you are going to do all of your sets with the same RIR. And and we can, it gets a little bit more intricate than that. And we'll get to that. But let's say you have, uh, you have a, a overhand grip, wide grip pull down, let's say, and you have three sets. You're gonna perform all three of those sets to the same RIR which means that you will probably end up with descending reps from set to set because as you fatigue, you have to keep the RIR the same. And so if you're roughly hitting a three RIR on all your sets, you might have 10 on the first set when you feel really fresh. And then in your second set, what three RIR will feel like now because you're a little bit more tired might be eight or nine reps. And then in the next rep set, it might be seven or eight reps. And we can talk about whether or not that actually practically takes place, but we're comparing this idea of doing the same RIR on each set versus what we would call maybe a descending RIR, which you would program as like a three, two, one RIR, where your first set of an exercise, that same pull down is a three, the second one is a two, the third set is a one, and that might yield a more, um, like more of like an eight, 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 where as you're getting fatigued because the RIR is descending, that you are now being programmed to try harder, and your increased effort might correlate with your decreased uh, effort or your increased in fatigue and your decrease in, in performance. And you might end up with it more of same reps across. Um, and we're going to have a discussion today about, you know, I think we've both experienced at least in some degree, both of them. I know that you, you were more recently poking your head into the, some of the descending rep in, in an attempt to like kind of have more context for this conversation, but I, that's how I'm doing it right now. And that, and you're doing more of like a more of that RP, RP style. That's how I trained for a really long time. I worked with the guys that Revive Stronger. And so that's like very much their methodology as well. Um, and so I think we have, we both have a good good case. And I don't think either of us are going to be standing behind a, this is the best and there's no, you know, I think, I think it's good though that we're both, each of us is doing one of the other ones right now. So we do have like very local or very recency, uh, very recent context to, to discuss it in. Did I, did I miss anything on that? No, I think that's pretty solid. I would say that in the premise of this conversation, it's probably like, hey, I'm the the guy that's more aligned with RP and, and you're the guy that's more like a descending RIR. And I think that um, I don't want my 
progression model to be confused with one of our P's because I think that in general, the overarching way in which I progress things is not anything like RP. The only part of the way that I do things that's like RP is, is potentially this idea of static RIR on a given day and then decreasing that week to week instead of set to set. Um, but I also think that um, throughout my training the last couple of years, I um, have actually used a lot of the descending RIR approach without thinking of it that way, because I still was progressing it in that way week to week. And what I mean by that is like week one would be, you know, lateral raises say it's like you go three, two, one as, as your RIRs in week one. And then it's like two, one, zero, and then it's one, one, zero, and then it's one, one, zero plus partials or like whatever that progression model looks like. It still has like a framework of kind of descending RIR set to set, um, where I haven't used it. And I, I feel like maybe my stance is a little bit stronger is on like big fatiguing compound movements. Um, I don't necessarily like that idea of using the descending RIR. So uh, what are your thoughts kind of on the disparity or the differences between how you might apply it for, for those two types of movements? Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely want to get to that. I think it would be helpful to just maybe talk about the similarities between these two approaches. And, and let's assume, like you just mentioned, kind of a hybrid approach where you might take uh, certain exercises, like you might feel differently on an exercise selection basis. Let's assume for a second we're not do, taking that approach and we're just like, hey, everything's going to be a week one. One is a four RR, week two, three, then two, then yeah. one, then zero, then deload, right? Let's assume that's what we're doing for a second. Like, what would you say, uh, and I can start if it's, obviously I didn't ask you this beforehand, but like, what would you say is like, well, okay, I see the descending RIR, I see the static RIR side, Where where's the overlap and where do these where do these both check the, the probably mm. the most important boxes? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, actually a really good way to pull that back and, and get us to clarify things a bit. So, so the 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 interesting thing about both of these approaches, and maybe I just assumed that that people would would get this, but is that the uh, the the average RIR that you're performing is probably going to be the same week to week. So, where you might have a lateral raise in week one that goes like three, two, one RIR, it's averaging two, and I might just say, "Hey, all of my lateral raises are are two reps from failure today." So, we're still averaging the same RIR, and we're just having one easier set and one harder set, right? Um, that would be the main thing that I would say. How about you? What do you have to add to that? No, that's spot on, and I think even just one even more zoomed out than that is that. Both of these methodologies involve a general concept of beginning your meso further from failure and moving closer to failure from week to week. And then on top of that, if you were to layer, you know, again, hypothetically, if you were to add up all the RIRs that I would program in a descending and you would add up all the Rs and they'd average the same number, that might not be true, but we can assume just in this bubble to compare things with one variable that that would be true. Like you said, you might be two RIR on all your lateral raises. I might do a three, two, one, which on average is the same, it's a two. Um, so both methodologies follow two concise rules. One is that we're gonna start generally further from failure and progress closer to slash beyond failure. Over You're just starting with easier training, working harder week to week. And on average, we're probably doing a very roughly similar week to week and across the entirety of the mesocycle, the average, the same RIR, this is more of a, how are we splitting this up? Are we doing it all on the same day, three or four RIRs all today? And then next week, all twos and threes and next week, all ones and twos. And then the next week, all ones and zeros. Or is it a four, three, two this week and a three, two, one next week and a two, one, zero and a one, zero, zero. And then a one, zero failure beyond failure. And you know, at the end of the day that they, they end up with the two most important things I think do hold true. And I think that there's, we're going to talk a lot about the parts of the Venn diagram that don't overlap and why they are different and why we might have personal preference. But I do think you could adopt either of these in a logical programming sense and make amazing. I mean, they check the two biggest boxes for me by far. Yeah. Anything beyond like those basic principles that you mentioned is like so nuanced that it's, it's actually kind of funny that we're having this conversation, but, um, but I love it. So yeah. yeah. Continue. <laughs> that, so do I, there's definitely a, there, I mean, at the end of the day, like these, sometimes these are like, there's, there's a bunch of, there are parts of nutrition and hypertrophy that I think are eerily similar, or at least I feel similarly about them because they both like, let's say, let's just take fat loss. For example, um, there's just so many ways to induce a deficit, adhere to a deficit, arrange your calories, arrange your macros, when you can eat, you know, how many meals you eat. There's so many ways to do this that all yield in a very tight window, similar results. And that just allows you to layer a lot of personal preference. 
And it's the same with hypertrophy. I feel like we've talked about the forgiving nature of hypertrophy and how there's like just a lot of ways to logically skin the cat. And, but that, but in, you know, in the same breath, we are still left needing to make a decision, right? It's like, oh, none of this stuff really matters, but then you still have to decide, okay, which one of these am I gonna do? So you still kind of, you're not flipping a coin. If there's one straw that tips the scale, okay, then you go with that one. And so we're gonna be dealing with those little straws here. And so- Yeah, and it's mostly psychological, I think. Like, I mean, when you make a decision of two basically same things that cover the basic principles, you're choosing the one more or less that, you know, you like to do better, that fits your lifestyle better. Oh, I like intermittent fasting because- then I don't have to think about food for a meal. Like whatever it is, you know, they're getting you to the same place and it's your psychology that's kind of influencing it. Yeah, agreed. Do you want to, do you want to, would you feel comfortable throwing a couple of points as to why you might prefer, I know that you just mentioned maybe a potential difference in exercise selection, but, and you can, you can go into that if you want, but hey, um, you're sitting here, you're on the stand. Why do you like doing static RIR? <laughs> yeah, um, so what's the way to say this? Do you find that most people, when they do implement the descending RIR, that they're matching reps set to set? So you might see that like 888, 321 RIR or something along those lines. In in the beginning, yes. I think that, that once you have a set to failure that isn't your last set, you should expect to drop off. And that will mm -hmm. happen if you start with 321, next week 210, then the next week is a one zero beyond failure potentially, right? If we're just doing numerically, it would be a one zero negative one. And so once you get to that point where not your last set is a failure set, you you should be okay with understanding that, hey, any set that I do after a failure set should have less reps. Um, mm -hmm. It's like, just like, it, it's just for the broad, it's it's like, it's almost impossible for you to, to do a set to failure. I would probably say practically it's impossible to do a set to failure and then the next set after that to match reps. So when you're saying three, two, one, do I suspect that that will roughly yield same reps across? I do. I would put the word roughly there and a little squiggly line, right? And, and the way I would describe it in my program is I usually write that. I'm like, hey, if the RIR feels a little bit daunting, this, you know, chances are you're on the right track. If this is yielding a roughly similar 888 or 999, mm -hmm. give or take a rep um, as you're figuring this process out. So I do, I do, I do kind of plug that as like an expectation or at least a ballpark of like, okay, I probably did this like roughly, roughly decently well. No, that was a great caveat. And I love that you actually include that in your program too, with like kind of some, some writing about that, because one of my bigger problems with it is in the way that that would get implemented by the masses at large. Um, because I think that there is such variance between whether you can sustain a rep number or not as your RIR drop. And I think the avatar of that, that applies that also varies a lot too, where you can have somebody that's relatively new to lifting and they can completely botch the first set and maybe they're like six RIR. And then when they actually get to their failure set, they're getting like six more reps than what they got on their first set. And so it's great in that sense that like you're getting them to a failure set early to be like, so they, they're aware and they're saying, hey, you know, wow, I really misjudged that. Um, so that's really good. But I think that, there is like a, in the communication of it, there seems to be like a broad expectation that as reps and reserve decrease one, that you should in theory, be able to like match the reps that are prior. And I just think that that's, that's probably not always the case. Um, and it can make it difficult to just transfer that message to people and kind of communicate it, um, to the different avatars that kind of exist within the programming. Yeah, that's totally true. There's at that point is 100% true. You, if I don't, you know, even if I write, hey, you're going to roughly get 888, there's somebody out there who's going to be, and the truth is we're better at assessing RIR the closer we are to failure. So you might do 8910. And I do see that sometimes where people are like 8910, because, you know, I, I'm trying harder on these later sets. And I'm like, yeah, you know, if I see an 8910, I know that that wasn't a 321. It just wasn't. Um, and, and to be honest with you, like, and, and what I find, again, so fucking awesome about hypertrophy is like, if someone's like, hey, I did 8910, did I do this right? Like, in my heart, I'm like, that wasn't a 321. But what I know is that like, if your 8910 was like an average of, if you combined the RIRs of those, like what they actually were without without knowing, just like just like if we had a genie that could tell you what the average RIR was, and it was like roughly three to four to five in the first week, and then all you do is progress from there, even if it wasn't my magical 321, like it was what I needed it to be, which was stimulative, stimulative enough to cause growth, 
but not so stimulative that you know you're you're uh, maybe less likely to progress over the long term or setting yourself up for worse training in the future. It, it was in the ballpark of where I'd like you to be. And if I were to like try and convince you that uh, that descending RIR was better, I'd probably say what you said, which was that you will more frequently and sooner in the meso experience a zero RIR checkpoint to kind of shit test yourself. Now that is more valuable for those who are learning RIR. And if you are an advanced trainee, then this point makes less sense because I can do yeah. a straight a static RIR and descending RIR the same. I feel very confident in my RIR assessments. But what, what I mean is just for the listener is like, if, if you're starting with a three, two, one RIR in week one, the next week I will write two, one, zero and I will also write a little blurb that reminds you that that last set, I know that we're focused on progression and I will tell you, I say, hey, I really just want you to focus on progression. But in addition to that, I really need this last set to be failure. Now that last set might give you the experience of having done in week one, eight, eight, eight. And then in week two, you're like, well, Jordan said, I just need to progress. So I'm gonna do nine and then nine. And then on this last set, he told me, okay, fuck the progression. I need to literally just go objectively to failure. You get nine, you get nine, you get 13. And what the take home is from that is that, okay, nine and nine and eight and eight was probably way further from failure than I really thought it was. And I've learned that in week two. Whereas in the, the static RIR, I might go three to four RIR in week one, two to three, one to two. And then in week four, I'll experience failure. And maybe in week four, I, I had done nine in week one, then 10, then 11, then 12. And then in the final week, when Brian told me to go to failure, not to put your name on it, but then I got 17. And it's like, holy shit, the whole mezzo was, was I wasted the entire, you know, I quote, wasted the entire mezzo. Yeah. Now, devil's advocate on that point is that while in my scenario, this person only learned this in, this helpful information on week two, just to play devil's advocate, is if I were to counter, it would say that, okay, regardless though, one person, it took a week and a half to figure out that they were sandbagging it. The other person took a mesocycle. But over the years of many years of training, that's the same information on a blip on the radar. And that person who figured out in week five that they could really do 17 in the, the next mesocycle will know that and will start with, 14 or 15 or 16 and they will know and they won't make that mistake again is my, you know, in theory, they wouldn't make that mistake again. So it's it's not really in the long term a big difference, but I do want, and so I'll finish my point in a second, but let's take the descending RIR group. They're gonna do a failure set in week two and they're gonna do another failure set in week three and may, presumably maybe two failure sets in week four and maybe three and whatever. They're just experiencing that more frequently, not more total, because what we said as a preface to this is that both groups are gonna on average do the same amount of RIR training, but maybe yeah. more frequently exposed to that failure. Um, I have other arguments, but let's just pause on this one real quick, because because yeah. and whatever, you get a chance to monologue. Yeah, no, appreciate it. Uh, that was that was really good. And I, I agree with pretty much all of that. And that also kind of goes back to that original point I made before we took it back a notch where I said that I prefer this actually for these isolation or to be even be more specific, short overload movements. Um, but I really don't like that approach. Let's explore that. The lengthened yeah, and, or, that. and or compound movements. And so what I love about doing that descending RIR approach on the short overload movements is that it gets people quickly to failure, to partials. And like, as we've discussed on prior podcasts, like you, you tend to sometimes incorporate like a reverse drop set or a partial kind of from the beginning. And you, you have people use uh, sub failure approaches to partials. Um, whereas I prefer to get people to partials as a progression model, uh, from reps and reserve to failure, to partials, to reverse drop sets, to whatever comes next. Um, so I love the descending RIR for that reason on short movements to get people to failure and then subsequently to partials earlier in the mesocycle. Can I pause you for one sec? So, so yes. just to two things. One, I, I've, uh, whatever. I like doing both of what you just said. I actually, we are doing this mesocycle, um, uh, a partials as progression and another exercise with a momentum as progression, which is going to be fun. Just like a, a strict press to a push press, um, oh, nice. which is going to be yeah. fun. And then also just like a lateral raise in as a, with a progression into partial. So love that as well. But what you're saying is, okay, short overload movements, single joint slash short, short overload movement, probably more importantly, the short overload side of things. Um, ironically for the for the larger muscle groups, they also tend to be single joint. They use like leg extension, hip uh, ham curl, but um, you prefer the descending RIR because it gets the person. 
So what I'm hearing is, hey, short overload movement on average, I'm going to start closer to failure because I might actually, and that's that's funny because the topic I want to get to next is this this like reassessment of stimulus to fatigue ratio. Um, but basically to, to kind of tease that, it's like, hey, these short overload movements, maybe I can train a little bit, maybe it would be best for me to train a little bit closer to failure with these. My question is why not just start all of the the lateral raises at one? And and because like what I'm hearing is that you want to train those closer to failure or you, you that's how you prefer to program it based on the discussion we'll have in a second. But why why go two one zero? Why not go one one one? That's a good question too. I mean, I just I just kind of like the the idea of uh, on the single joint movement warming up into it a little bit. So so one of my points that was going to be a pro point for for the descending RIR was going to be that it kind of mitigates the need for an additional warm up set because if you're doing like a short overload isolation movement at two or three RIR, that can kind of act as a warm up set that's also giving you a couple effective reps. And so the the simple answer to that is like, hey, instead of one 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 or whatever it is, I feel like you would need an additional warm up set to get to that one rep from failure set versus just doing a two to three RIR set and then being like, wow, there's a pump. My shoulders are warm. Take a break, get to my heavier set from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and, uh, and a, a soft counters. That's actually, a, a, I agree with that point. I love the idea that there's a pairing between like, so let's just understand the concept that as you go from set to set, there's probably an upside down U-shaped curve in neurological efficiency. What I mean is like from set one to set two, you probably get in a better groove with your technique. Maybe even set two to set three, you get in a better groove of technique. Maybe set three to set four, it's a better groove of technique. That doesn't pan out forever. Eventually, you're it's the opposite, and you end up, be, you, know, um, you know, we've all been to that without trying to put too many scientific words on it. We've all been to that point where, like, there's a reason if you're on, if you're doing like seven sets of something that the seventh set isn't just better than the third set. Eventually, that that uh, graph of neurological efficiency, yeah, it goes down. Your technique gets worse, yeah. uh, uh, and so. I actually, one of the things I like is that you're, and I think you can relate to this by the idea of a top set where um, you're pairing when the person is more neurologically efficient, maybe second, third, fourth set, when they're like really in the groove with that higher effort. And and that just is, again, I think these are all very weak arguments because I still think 99% they're the same because of the two big things we talked about, descending RIR on average over the meso and starting with easier training, ending with harder training. But one of those is like, you know, maybe... First and second set, I think a lot of people, even with proper warmups, are kind of like, well, even maybe they don't even do proper warmups, and those end up being not a warmup, but some form of a bridge to get mm. you to a your hardest set. Uh, and I do like that that kind of pairs together. And so I think you kind of would agree with that. It's kind of what you said for those lateral races is one of the reasons that you might use that. Yeah. And then for the reasons that I like it, the, uh, the static RIR approach for the compound movements is because it really feels to me like once you do a set, let's just take an example here. So you have, we're taking a, an RDL or a hack squat, something that you're probably not going to go to like absolute failure on. And maybe in the final week, maybe not. Like I, I often don't program RDLs to zero to one RIR ever. Um, so we'll just assume that one RIR is, is the furthest you're going to go. Right. So once you get to a point where your big compound movement is like a four, three, two, or a three, two, one, or something like that. And you have that, that heavy set that is your final set, you know, it almost feels like now you're taking that Brian minor, like philosophical approach to progressive overload. That's like watching paint dry where you're like, I've already taken this progression as far as it can go, like kind of early in the mesocycle. And now I just kind of need to wait for progressive overload to happen versus if I'm like, Hey, week one's four reps from failure, then we three reps from failure, then two reps from failure. And then the final week is one rep from failure. There is that inherent, like small victory, that win that you're getting each day that you go into the gym where you're not just showing up to do this compound movement to fucking feel like ass at the end of it and feel like you failed because you didn't actually accomplish your objective of improving or progressing. It's like progression is handed to you on this golden platter. Like, Hey, add weight, add a rep because you have to get closer to failure type thing. Yeah. And, and the counter to that is there's a, there's a, there's like a two different counters. One of which is in a kind of an agreement, but for like a backwards reason, the, the, the counter is, well, like, I would just start your RDLs at six, five, four, you know what I mean? Like, or four, th five, four, three, right? If you're, at, if you're doing a four, then I, why not do a five, four, three? I think your argument of, Hey, if you do a descending RIR, most of the time 
it's being programmed by somebody who's not considering what we're talking about, which is maybe we don't take these axial loaded things to failure as often, right? Axial loaded, lengthened overload, compound lifts. Um, maybe we don't take those as, a, and so what you might often see is the same RIR program for those movements and the lateral raise that is, the lateral raise and the RDL are polar opposites in terms of stimulus, like in basically every way, resistance profile, axial loading, how much they load the spine is what axial loading means. Um, and so you're saying, hey, programming three to four really protects against that issue of people going to failure before they really should. And if it says three to four on every set, there's no two ways about it. Did you absolutely not get it that close to failure this week? And if you do, then it is like categorically like wrong. You did this wrong. Um, I love that as a protective mechanism. The counter is just programming five, four, three. Um, however, I think practically speaking, I have seen that as well. And so I will make sure that I program things like five, four, three or four, three, two. And, um, and so I'm taking that, I take that information in as well. And I totally think that there's, at the very least, the take home, I think what you're doing is saying, hey, they're probably very similar, but if I write it this way, I probably get more people to not make this mistake. And, and I love that reasoning, because again, we're, we're, we're talking about the margins here of like, at the end of the day, like, how do I communicate this at the very least to a large group so that they have the least likelihood of fucking it up, when in reality, either way would be fine. So that's kind of the deal breaker. And, and I really do love that. That's a, the best motivation, I think, for sure. Yeah. So that's really like the way I kind of feel and use them in programming. And so I'm actually like really glad that I spent the last, you know, three or four weeks dedicating to using descending RIR because I wouldn't have realized how much I actually really do enjoy that for the like short overload, lower fatiguing movements. Um, but there's like literally no part of me that wants to use that for, for the big compound length and movements. I wrote, I wrote down that, um, and I want to, I want to, I want to like red team this argument here. I wrote down that, I wrote it down the other day, and now I'm trying to work back what my argument was. I wrote down that with the descending RIR, you will have to quantify RIR less frequently. So my goal as well, maybe it's just a group programming based goal and not like an individual peak athlete goal is to get my, get my athletes, my clients, the people in the group to do what I know they should do without uh, analysis paralysis or, you know, feeling overwhelm. And so it's a delicate dance that I know you, you dance as well, where it's like, Hey, I want to teach you RIR and tempo, but I also want to like, make sure that you know that these are a tool to get in a ballpark. They are not like in and of itself, the perfection of this thing isn't as important as, you know, you getting, like we said, starting relatively far from failure, but close enough to make gains and, and making, and making progress over the mezzo. Like, how do I get my, how do I get my group to do that? Um, and what I kind of was thinking was, you know, if you have a three to four RIR, four, let's say you're doing the RDL and it's three or four RIR, you have to communicate to your group that they will not get the same number on each set. They will get descending RIR. And sometimes from set one to set two, maybe you can match because the first one was like a pseudo warm up, and the second one you're feeling neurologically a little bit more primed and ready. And I, I've done this before where I'm like, hey, I matched reps and it felt like a similar RIR. But let's assume that if you have a three, if you're doing static RIR, then the reps must fall as you get more fatigued. That means That's how that I teach it, yeah, and and that makes more sense. Um, again, the, the the circumstance where you'd match reps is like that happens. That's the, but it's not something that you suspect. It's not how you would teach it. So, um, so in that context, I have to calculate my RIR every set, and I'll play devil's advocate to this in a second. You can too, but in that circumstance, I need to do ten three RIR, or I need to do three RIR, and then I get ten. And in my next set, I need to, again, focus on getting three RIR because I'm not focused on getting 10 again. I'm focused on getting three RIR, which might be nine, which might be eight, right? And so I need to be in my head again about the RIR. And then set three, I need to be in my head again RIR because I'm not shooting at a number. The, the Very gently, the descending RIR, again, at least in weeks one, two, and three, you're probably gonna get similar, R, similar reps across. And so the way I would, at least if we're in a courtroom here trying to make a case, is that I would say, hey, if you can nail the first set at three RIR, you don't need to calculate RIR again, maybe for the entire mezzo. Maybe the entire mezzo you've already nailed by getting this three RIR. Now you could say by getting it wrong, you also now have fucked up. Um, that's where the more frequent going to failure, I think, plays a role. But if you nail that first set at three RIR and you get 10, you could, in my, I would stand by this. You could get 10 on the next set and 10 on the next set. And it's probably a two and a one. And it took away the, the thought process of you needing to calculate RIR again in that second and third set. And if you show up next week and you got 10, 10, 10, you can, again, just lean into progression and not really need to, in my opinion, you could probably never worry about RIR again. 
except for when your coach says, hey, specifically, I need this last set to failure because this is our shit test of like what you think you've been doing um, versus if I have the same RIR every set, the counter argument is in, I'm guessing for you guys, and you can correct me, is like you might say three to four RIR on everything. And then in the following week, like, yeah, two to three RIR on everything, but also try and focus on progression. Uh, and so you might also... That, that need to calculate RIR every single set, every single week might drop off over time and you might gently more lean more heavily on progression or is it is that, am I off there? I actually would say that the same exact argument that you made about not having to think about RIR can be applied to my model as well. I wrote that, um, go ahead. I literally wrote but, that, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> but um, uh, also- well, Would, you, would to, you drop a rep? Would you, like I, my argument is that you can match reps. Would your argument be like, yeah, that's cool. You can assume yeah, a rep Yeah, you just off. drop a rep, yeah. yeah. So so the also the other argument, like the, the counter to your argument is you're saying, hey, we're starting at three RIR. But if we're talking about an RDL, which is the way that I would use this, you're talking about starting it at five RIR because you're saying you would start sure. at five, four, three or six, sure. five, four. Sure. Well, now the the possibility of your client getting this wrong right. at five RIR or six RIR is way, way, way more than me at three to four or whatever it is RIR. Um, so the, the risk of messing that up is certainly higher. Um, but even with my model to go back to that point, it's like, okay, you're going to try and get a four or five RIR this week, four, three to four, we'll say week one, four RIR. Um, yeah, you're going to go 10, nine, eight or something along those lines, 10, nine, eight, 10, eight, seven, depending on what type of athlete you are. So I try to coach that a little bit too. Like, you know, if you're a more endurance based, uh, you need less rests between sets type athlete, then maybe you can go like 10, nine, eight, um, or even in the earlier weeks, it might be like 10, 10, nine, you know, you know, like to your point, you don't really know. And then you're more like explosive, fast twitch athletes like me. If I do an RDL to four RIR, my next four RIR is going to lose at least a rep, if not two. And then the one after that would probably lose one rep or zero reps. Um, so, so there is some variance in there, but once you nail it the first week, it's the same idea. You literally just, I say, Hey, you add five pounds or you add 2.5 pounds, depending on the movement, whatever it is. And then you just try to nail the exact same reps. And so you turn your brain off. You don't have to think about it too much. It's exactly, I literally, my exact words are maybe in practice, you could do something similar with something like a one rep drop off and then just focus on progression, dot, 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 same shit. That's literally my exact words. So I totally get that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That's, and, and, and it is, it is interesting. There's just like, it is, brings it back to like, there's something that there are going to be people that listen, that listen to this, that either have experienced both or have just experienced one. They're like, oh, this really clicks for my brain. And at the end of the day, that's what we're talking about here is like, which of these things really clicks for your brain. And more than anything, a big takeaway that I think that I would at least want to prescribe is that like, I think that RIR is cool and all, but, and I am big RIR component. My content talks about it. My program has it in there, but shit. Get, getting close enough in week one, like RIR in week one is where I really need you to like ballpark where I need you to be. And then from there, it's forward and yeah. it's up. And if you do that, uh, you're just so close to getting all of the way there. And, and on top of that is like, we're talking about a single mesocycle. We're talking about figuring out all this stuff in a single mesocycle, but that isn't what training is. It's like stringing yeah, yeah. of mesocycles together and together. And so, you know, this idea of like, oh my God, if I do it Brian's way, I'm going to really, I'm not going to get as many frequent failure sets as what Jordan said. And maybe I waste the whole mesocycle, not training as hard. Okay. So what you, if you have that same movement in again, and you keep some air of continuity in your training, which you freaking should, then this all really does work itself out. And you know, you might be like, oh my God, I'm like, what's the best way to get better at RIR is to keep your movements the same, focus on progression, occasionally purposefully go to failure. If you do those three things, like you will get better at RIR and more importantly than that is you will spend more time training in a the right place, which is stimulative, how, whatever relative intensity that you're supposed to be at that time. I think it figures itself yeah. out. Yeah. So to that point, like, I just think, you know, using those short overload movements and getting people to failure quicker and getting them into partials and stuff like that, it, it makes huge sense to do the descending RIR um, and get them there in, you know, two week two or three or whatever. Cause the fatigue cost of doing a lateral raise or like a tricep push down to, to failure is, I mean, basically non-existent when you look at the grand scheme of, of things and then being a little bit more prudent with compounds, like, I think both of our ways obviously can work, but uh, for the reasons we've discussed, you know, you have that that ability to kind of start somewhere, figure out where it is that you're starting, get that right, and then it's just move forward and progress from there. Excellent. Let's well, let's let this a really good segue into the next is this 
We're going to talk a little bit about uh, something, a notion uh, called stimulus to fatigue ratio. It's popularized by uh, Dr. Mike Isertel as just this understanding that things that you do bring a certain level of stimulus and they bring a certain level of fatigue with them. Mm -hmm. And the ratio between those two things would can guide you to getting the most out of your training. If you're getting, if you're doing things with a really good stimulus to fatigue ratio, then you can probably do more of them and you can get more stimulus per unit of fatigue. And under the understanding that we have a finite amount of recoverability, a finite amount of this fatigue that we can accrue. And if you have 100 fatigue points and you can get 200 stimulus points versus 150 stimulus points, that over time, obviously those are totally arbitrary numbers, you can make better gains over time. And one of the discussions of SFR is this uh, proximity to failure, understanding that from some of the research we have that we see a very similar, if not identical growth stimulus from training to something like, you know, one to three RIR, let's say two to four RIR. I mean, honestly, you could, there are studies that are like, hey, five RIR and zero RIR are the same. I mean, there's studies that go that far, but if we're being a little bit more, I think, you know, putting some of our anecdote and evidence and understanding into play here, let's say that the thing that you and I will discuss today is this notion of, hey, training, don't train to failure because you can get a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. And what I mean by that is roughly the same stimulus for less fatigue if you train, let's say two to three RIR. Um, do, do you have any problems with that or maybe not problems with that, but like any uh, things that you would expand upon as, as far as not maybe just accepting that at face value? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. The, uh, man, I just literally lost my thought. I had like the perfect thought. So I'll go to my second thought, which is fresh in my brain right now. Um, which is that I think when you look at the, the general overview of studies that are done on these types of things. Oh, the first thing I was going to say was volume equated. Um, that was going to be the first thing I was going to say. Cause, cause literally, I mean, if you're, if you're talking about doing three RIR and compared to failure, it might be having to do four sets or five sets instead of three sets or four instead of two. Can you expand that a little, on that a little bit? Because that is just not talked about enough. Yeah, that's that's the main reason. That was the thing that was in my head initially. So basically, if you have, man, to the, the easiest way for me to think about this is to use the effective reps model. So I know that's not perfect, but we'll just use that. Um, so if you have sets at three RIR, then, and your effective reps means the last five reps before failure. So you have rep five, four, three, two, one that are basically effective reps. Um, if you're doing everything with three reps from failure, then you're only getting two effective reps on each set. So if you did five sets, you would get 10 effective reps. Um, whereas if you did two sets to failure, you get five effective reps on each one of those sets. So you would only have to do two sets instead of five sets in that case. And these studies uh, do, 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 um, they're not they're they are equating volume that the the problem is yes. this these these studies are equating volume so they're doing what you said which is like hey you know if i match volume if i do five sets at three at, at three rir which means i get like like you just said the last five are the ones that really count and so if we have five that could potentially count but i'm leaving three in the tank that means i'm getting two out of every set that I've accumulated five, uh, 10 effective reps over five sets. But if I do two sets all the way to failure, I'm getting five on each of those, so I'm getting 10. The problem is that those two things might be equal, but that's not the takeaway for most people. Most people are like, oh, that means I can do two sets at three RIR or two sets to failure, and I'm gonna get the same stimulus. That is not true. Yeah, and they don't do a great job of communicating that when they talk about studies. Like the, the headline is always like, not training to failure, just as good as training to failure or whatever. And so, yeah, it's very confusing for people. And then, so the second point I was gonna make is that um, when you look at just studies generally, and this isn't apply every study, but most of the studies that show that you can get great results training further from failure are done on like big compound length and movements. And then most of the studies that are done on isolation movements are done to failure. Um, so it kind of creates a little blur um, in the research there as well. Yeah, and, and, and so just a small devil's advocate, like a set to failure, um, if you take any exercise and like, this would be clear, like if you take any exercise at a three RIR and a one at a, and something at a zero RIR, you get more stimulus and more fatigue for the zero. You get less stimulus, less fatigue at the three RIR. That's both true. The argument is that the ratio of the two would be better at three RIR. Now. Yeah you brought up a really important point is that the, in my, I guess you, you brought it up, but in my opinion that that misses the mark in terms of uh, exercise selection, that there's just a big, in my opinion, in my experience, that we're not at a place where we've done these extensive studies, but 
the actual exercise that you're talking about changes how I view it, how I view this. And, you know, when you think of taking a back squat to failure, uh, you, I think you could make a really reasonable argument, like maybe slightly contestable, but you could make a reasonable argument that that juice might not be worth the squeeze. You know, that there's more risk, that there, it's more likelihood that this SFR argument of maybe don't take it all the way to failure, you could make more of an argument that that makes sense in that regard because it's such a fatiguing movement and there might be a big gap between what a zero RIR back squat feels like and a two RIR back squat. Those two, in my opinion, just, just like the emotion that evokes you when you think about those things, if you've done them, they're very far apart. A two RR back squat, you can do no anxiety. A zero RR back squat, very like intense, very systemically fatiguing, neurologically fatiguing, anxiety driving, let alone, you know, physiologically also more fatiguing. But the gap between a two RR lateral raise and a, honestly, for me, like a beyond failure into partial reps lateral raise is quite tight. And that, when we talk about fatigue, in my opinion, we have to distinguish between systemic and local. Like I'm systemically going to be fine from a beyond failure lateral raise. That's not going to bring so much fatigue that it's like overflowing my ability to recover as much as maybe the back squat does. How do you, how do you feel about that? No, I agree completely with it. Like it feels as if when you take that lateral raise set to and beyond failure, the extra fatigue you're creating is local. Like it's right there in the lateral delt. Like you can feel it accumulating. Um, but when you take that same back squat set, you know, at two RIR, your quads are rocked. Like you, you, you've, you've created a ton of juice and, and done what you need to do there. And then those extra two reps, it's like, there's, there's always the argument of like, are you even doing them the exact same as, as the prior reps? Like where is the exact failure point? Cause the hips shifting in a back squat is like a very gradual process in most cases. Like it's not like one rep is perfect and your torso is upright. And then the next rep you're doing a good morning. I mean, this happens super gradually and it could be over the course of five reps that your form compromises and changes. Um, but the speed of the rep might not actually change because you're just compromising your positioning instead of actually grinding through that position. So, so I think it becomes so ambiguous at that point. Um, that if you then begin to compromise form at all, you're shifting load into those structures that receive fatigue much more, uh, much more aggressively than, than the local musculature. And, and this also, this is all super cool. to like for us for like pontificate about, but if we look at like the average person's what, what, like, what are the, what's the average person's barrier to getting their best gains? It's not optimizing SFR. It is, I don't, like, if you were to optimize SFR, if you were to equate volume, like we talked about, and you're like, hey, I'm only training three RIR, and I'm going to do as many sets at three RIR as I need to, to equate for stimulus or get the most out of it, the workouts would take too long. Like, there's, I had, there's a big problem I have. Like, the, if you're like, hey, five sets at three RIR is going to be, give you a better SFR than two sets at zero RIR. First of all, I would contest that that we know that for a fact, but if you're telling me it's a 1% better, but I have to spend an extra 15 minutes doing it, then it's a no-brainer. And then maybe it's not 1%, maybe it's 5%, maybe it's 8%, but I think that whatever it might be is not more important to me than his workout takes 90 minutes to two hours. And that might even in itself be a confounding variable of people's ability to work out that long and get that sort of effort. And so, you know, yeah. it doesn't it doesn't seem to me that that like I learned about this whole SFR. I have multiple podcasts with Ryan Solomon and Steve Hall came on here. We talked about it, um, but but in practice, um, I think that it's more looking at the exercise, the resistance profile, the axial loading, the systemic fatigue, the how like emotionally draining that movement is, and the more of those things it is, maybe the on average further from failure you can go, but or where that SFR is peaks might be further from failure, but for like, fuck man, a high stability, single joint, short overloaded movement. Like I can, I can, you know, yeah. I can do a 90 degree yeah. preacher curl, which is like my favorite exercise in the literally favorite exercise, like short position, mid to short overload. I can take that like to the point where I can barely move my arm and flex my elbow at all. And I get up from that and I'm, and I'm fine. And my bicep yeah. got a ton of stimulus. Yeah. And, and maybe you could say, Hey, two sets of two RR would have been 5% better. I'm like, yeah, great. That's going to cost me another four minutes. I can't extrapolate that across every body part. And I just can't be here yeah. that long. Yeah. I, um, I have to work pretty hard just to fit the common sense approach to training that we have into 60 to 75 minutes. Like that's what our programs are. You know, we say 60 to 75 minutes and, um, and it's hard just to fit that in without, 
you know, trying to do five to six sets of everything with four RIR or something like that. I mean, I couldn't even imagine. And then kind of the one thing that Greg Knuckles always says, I heard him on a bunch of podcasts be like, come on, would you ever like just take a bicep curl to three RIR? Like, why would you do that? You just take bicep curls to failure, you know, like just, it just like, to your point, you just, where's the fatigue, you know, the fatigue is right there in the muscle. You're not breathing hard. You're not crouched over, like trying to trying to gather your senses or anything like that. You're just like, yep, that was a bicep curl. Let's do the other arm, you know? And a lot of the time, I think you and I would agree though, that while we can have this intellectual discussion and application, we're going to be leaning on closer slash beyond failure on, you know, things that are not lengthened overload, maybe things that aren't axially loaded, maybe things with higher stability. Um, and when you do those things, they're just, decreases all the systemic fatigue and you're you're not that's that does not spill over at all and so all you're really getting is just more local stimulus and in confounding variables is also an opportunity to teach people to lean into pushing people all the way to failure um which is a, a subset obviously that's not a scientific argument it's more of a practical thing where it's like hey like I'll tell you right now, there are exercises in my program that we take to failure every week from week one forever um there are different reasons why we do that. This is, it's rare. Uh, it's usually when I think the workout's getting pretty long, but I really need you to do this exercise. So we might do less sets and I might just say, Hey, we're just, this is an opportunity. We're just, you need to experience what this feels like. Um, is that something that you've, you've, well, I know that you on average will take something closer to failure, but maybe, maybe it'd be helpful just to talk about, like, I know I love how you've dealt with this process of, Hmm, I'm not taking my lateral raises to four RIR than three, then two, I'm going to take, start them at two. But once I get to, or start them at one or whatever. And once I get to zero, I'm actually going to not just stay at zero. I'm going to continue that process on. So maybe run, run the listener. Just if I'm sure if they follow you, they kind of have an idea, but run the listener through what that might look like for you. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the progression. Like week one, a lateral raise might go, uh, like two, one, one or two, two, one or something like that. And then by week three, we're pretty much at like one, one, zero, um, plus partials. So what that basically means is it's kind of like a shit test for yourself because, um, this is like a, a secondary benefit of partials that I think is kind of under discussed. Um, cause I always think of it as like, Hey, it just makes sense based on this study, this study, this study, this study, like, you know, you got to take these muscles through the length and position. They're too short overloaded, like all of these big terms and phrases, the simple thing that I'm getting feedback from everyone at Paragon is basically just like, Hey, I didn't realize how far from failure I was until we started doing partials. And the way I coach those are, you know, it's uh, it's max effort. So you're trying to achieve the same range of motion you did on the prior rep, but you're unable to, uh, without compromising form. And so they realize that they're, that they, they're capable of so much more than they could. And so if we're in a, a six week mesocycle, which is the way we generally program our hypertrophy program was like a one week intro deload and then five weeks, um, by week three or four, we're into partials. And I have not, as we've discussed on podcasts, I still at this point have not gotten aggressive enough to program a reverse drop set in um it's coming in the the next mesocycle and i've teased it a few times but uh, but that would be the logical next progression for me after partials uh we have a reverse drop set which is essentially adding weight uh and then going into partials so you would finish your lateral raise set say with 20s you would finish full range of motion reps no partials then you would pick the 30s up and you would just do whatever, it's usually 80% of the reps of the top set. So you get 12 on the first set, you try to get nine or 10 on the second set. And it's basically uh, partial reps of lateral raises from there with a heavier weight. And then um, something I, I don't think that I'm going to include into my general programs anytime soon, but as my own kind of experimentation, I have been doing a ton of lengthened only sets and I'm not doing these where I'm trying to just only hit 50% range of motion and just maintain 50% range of motion. I'm actually trying to achieve as much range of motion as I can get and then letting that range of motion drop off. And so I'm not even convinced that that way is necessarily the most optimal, but um, I, I think that at this point in my training career, uh, 25 years in that, I don't know that, that there's going to be a whole lot of difference, whether I, I do things what I believe is optimal versus let's try the experimentation pool and just kind of see what works and um, try and create some cool stuff for other people to learn from. Something I find is like, uh, I think there's a misunderstanding, maybe not a misunderstanding, but I'll have people that are like, hey, if I 
Um, if I want my sessions to be shorter, like if people will use like volume as like a set proxy and the biggest volume is lower, can intensity be higher to mitigate the less sets? The answer is 100% yes. Is it a, is it a like for like one-to-one -one ratio change? No, but this idea that, hey, if I'm working out less, I can I train harder? Absolutely. Um, can you, can you mitigate the idea that you're doing less sets or less days in the gym by, by training harder and getting more stimulus per set that you do? Absolutely. Yes. Um, I, I'm, and when I think of our programs, I think they're both four days a week. I don't know if you guys have experimented with more or less than that. Maybe you have a three-day option as well. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm realizing that that with four days a week, 60 to 75 minutes, it's it's pretty tough for people to reach systemic, like systemic fatigue overload, systemically overtraining. You know, I think it's it's I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little dancing around this because I'm sure this happens more than zero times. I know that, that this will happen more than zero times depending on people's nutritional status and their habits and their sleep sucks and that person might arrive at this stage more. But like if you're doing a four to six week mesocycle four times a week, four to six exercises per per, per day, six, 45 to 75 minutes, roughly decent, like you're not at failure on everything right from the get-go. You're, you're, I just have not seen myself program something for the group where it was too hard on a grand scale. And I've gone as far as to do something called partial rep match, which I know that you, you can infer what that means, right from week one, where you're partial rep matching a uh, lateral raise, three sets, first set all the way to failure, second set partials much must accumulate the same number as the first set, and the third set, again, same. So you might do 10 on the first one, and then seven with three partials on the second one, and then five with five partials on the third one, and then that's week one, and you have to progress from there. Mm -hmm. And I have yet to be, people be like, wow, like, one, I'm not progressing in that at all, or two, I'm really, like, totally so run down by the end of this mesocycle, just because I think we're at that capacity where it's four times a week, four to six exercises, 60, 75 minutes. I think just within that structure, which is in my opinion, the most important hierarchy here because that's where people are gonna be most adherent. I'm not saying just fuck it, go to fucking failure on everything It's beyond failure and partials. And But in select circumstances, I just I'm, I have yet to be like, oh yeah, people, this is gonna kill people. Like you had talked about the reverse drop set from the beginning. I know that that was, a, was murderous. But I still didn't get like feedback of people like I'm never progressing. My lats are always sore. I'm systemically fatigued. I have sleep disruption and I'm not dealing with these hundreds of people on that intimate of a basis. But I would suspect to have enough feedback about that, that, mm -hmm. that this is killing people. And I'm just thinking that we're still within this construct, these parameters of times per week and all this stuff. Like it, we're just very unlikely to reach like systemic overload. Yeah. I think a lot of that is credit to you for being prudent with the way that you program the really highly fatiguing movements too. Cause like yep. taking, like, like we've just said, like taking a lateral raise or a cable row or something like that and doing partials or reverse drop sets or whatever it is, like, that's not the thing that's going to drive people to the point of like, Oh my God, my life, I just can't handle it. You know, it's going to be like some idiot who comes in and programs like three sets of RDLs to failure in week two. And like, yeah, you know, before you know it, you're doing six sets of Bulgarians per leg, you know, with one minute of rest in between or something like that. that's the type of stupid stuff that, that ends up crushing people. But if you're prudent with the, like, if you're saying we're doing most of the time, we're doing two sets of Bulgarians at most there's, I can't remember the last time I programmed three sets of Bulgarians to anybody um because two is just i mean god your soul not to, you know, not, to just... not to cut you off there i want you to go on your app but i am working with um shout out i work with a company called active life which is like online yeah. pts for my yeah. ankle i just have like I'm realizing this was a serious injury and I'm, I'm pretty fucked up and so i really need someone to take over like the plyometric side of things where i'm and and, and the ankles the ankle specific stuff but i was like fuck it man take the leg training all together because maybe there's more specific stuff we can do more unilateral stuff more lower stability, potentially worse for hypertrophy. But first day of the program, it was like uh, four sets of 10 Bulgarians at like a seven out of 10 RPE. And uh, and it was like four sets of 10 yeah. uh, RDL, barbell RDL. And I remember writing in my sheet on True Coach and I was like three, I was like two sets of six Bulgarian at 55. And then two sets of, uh, it was like three sets of six at 255 yeah. on the RDL. And he was like, what's up, man? And I was like, oh, I'm just not doing more than that. Like, I was just like, I'm not doing more than six reps of these and I'm not doing four sets of Bulgarians. Like I just can't. Right, right. No, that's a, that's a really funny story. Yeah, I think that the Active Life crew is is used to working with CrossFitters that are so like volume centric, and they don't understand proximity to failure. Like yeah. RPE seven to them is just like emotion. It's just a number. Yeah, yeah, it's an yeah. emotion. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, an yeah. emotional state. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's really funny though. Um, so, anyways, that's that's more what I'm saying is that you're doing a great job as as am I of programming the highly fatiguing movements. 
um, with less volume and, and less proximity to failure or more proximity to failure, whatever is further from failure. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the, the whole gist there of, of keeping people fresh. But um, I will say that, you know, I, I do have people on occasion be like, man, I'm really, really ready for the deload week type thing. And that's not to say that they, that they killed themselves and they're systemically fatigued or anything like that. But like, Hey, after you train hard for five or six weeks, like you kind of earn the deload week. So go ahead. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about, I, I, it's so funny. I'm in my group is in like a peak week, whatever the last week before deload. And I've had like people message me like, man, I'm really ready for the deload. Like, do you, do you take that as feedback as like, maybe I'm tiptoeing on the edge of too much? Or do you take that as like a fucking finally, like, you know, like finally you're at a place where, you know, feeling ready for a deload is still might be, might actually be like feeling emotionally ready for a deload might be far away from actual overtraining, um, but yeah. might be closer to it than you've ever been potentially. And so I usually take that with like a good, I mean, sometimes I'm, I'm you know, I'm a bit more uh, sympathetic, but, but I'm usually taking that as like a <laughs> mission accomplished sort of thing. If you can get to, dude, if you can get to yeah. that state with somebody after five weeks of four times a week training, which is not nothing by the way, four times a week, I'm a big advocate, but you have people that are training six times a week and never getting to that point. And so mm-hmm. it is a sign of like, you're being effective with what you're doing. Yeah. The way I look at it and the response I always get is good as expected. Uh, you've earned your deload, you know, that's exactly my response, like well-earned. And, and I think that it doesn't, I think I would be more concerned about it if I thought that the reason they needed the deload was systemic more than psychological. But as you and I have discussed so many times, like the desire to deload is almost always going to be psychological. And so that is the default that I use with people until I hear otherwise. I wanted to, I don't know how much time you have left. I have like 10, 12 minutes here. So I don't know if you have any extra time, but I, I we were going to yeah, 12, 15 is good. Yeah. Let's go until then. I'm going to save the discussion of rep ranges. I know you and Aaron just did a podcast on that. And I'm going to link it in the description, but there are a couple points I would have, I would love to chat about on here. So maybe we'll have you back on for that. That, that in and of itself yep. could be a whole discussion, but segueing into what you just said, where it's like this need for a deload is like almost always psychological, not physiological. You're not running into like an inability to progress in most cases. Like, that has to do with the experiment that I've been doing with my training, but I'm, we have not talked about your experiment that you're doing with your training. So t- tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, so just a matter of like two weeks ago, I finally decided to accept all the badgering from Dr. Dave McConey and, uh, and do a unilateral experiment. So the background is essentially this dude, Dave, um, he has a podcast. You guys should check it out. It's called brains and gains. Um, but for two years now, he's only been training one of his calves and, uh, he has a bunch of training experience. I think he's at 17 or 18 years of training, uh, similar to myself at 25. And so, um, he has seen no difference from two years of training only one of his calves and he and I, in, in DMS and uh, stuff, we've, we've chatted about this and some of the reasons why. And, uh, the theory is kind of that, a, he's, he's close to his genetic limit for, for calf growth. Uh, B, he does sprints twice a week. And so he's providing a ton of force through his calf and uh, walking on it every day. And we know that maintenance volume for muscles is so much lower than it is to actually build. And so maybe there's just this crazy confluence of events where he is doing enough volume through running and sprinting and walking that his calf is not shrinking as to why the other one isn't growing. Um, that has to go back to the kind of the genetic peak. Like he's just reached his ceiling of, uh, potential growth for his calves. So I decided, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, over two years, he's gone uh, from 200 to 180, and then back to 200. Okay, and now okay. he's hanging out around 200. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, stuff. yeah, yeah. So what are you doing? Um, so my experiment is for arms. Um, I have always noticed my left arm being less coordinated, less developed. Uh, it has less definition. Like the vein structure in my right arm is more prominent. Um, I just feel like on every on every movement that I do. I kind of have to cheat my left arm to on the final rep. It's always one rep, whether it's like a, an iliac pull down, you know, my left arm is always struggling a little, or if it's a one arm, you know, face away cable curl, my left arm always has to get a little like kind of come on buddy um, for the last rep. And so I just decided that, you know, I may as well just train my left arm for six months and not train my right arm at all with any direct work and see what happens. So 
Um, I'm now two weeks in, which has been three bicep set, actually now three bicep sessions and three tricep sessions. Um, maybe it's more than two weeks, whatever it is, it's three of each of those sessions so far. And, uh, it feels, it feels weird, man. Like every day I finish training my left arm and there's just this massive pump on the left side of my body. And it's not just like locally in my arm. It's also like kind of in my trap and like my upper back and my shoulder and like the whole left side of my body just for a couple hours feels a little bit off compared to the, the right side, like a kind of deflated balloon versus a blown up balloon type thing. Um, but I'm really excited about it because I, like I said earlier regarding the lengthened only sets that I'm doing, I just, I, there's, there's gotta be some, some shit to keep me interested now. And, um, and this is one of those things where wouldn't it be cool if I discover that nothing happens and then I can kind of just stop training arms. Like what yeah, if there's so know, many, I'm, arm, I'm so, I'm, I'm upset yeah. that we are going down this route. Cause now I have so many questions, um, <laughs> you know, like, like if outcome X happens, what do you, yeah. what's your hypothesis of outcome Y happens? Yeah. What's your hypothesis? And, and what do you do about either of those? Fuck man, we got, I got eight minutes, but, here, but all right, let me poke <laughs> around. So like, let's, what do you think? What do you think will happen? Yeah. So I think my hypothesis is that I answered uh, this on your Instagram already. You asked if you nothing. think something would happen. So I have an answer, but you go. Yeah. I think nothing will happen. Um, I think that my, my right arm will stay the same because doing like one arm pull downs and doing training presses back and presses, and training back and presses and shoulders and stuff will be enough to maintain the muscle on my right arm. And then the really depressing part is that I also kind of expect my left arm not to grow at all. Are um, you in a surplus? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm at least, I'm in a, a, a main gaining, gaintaining type thing. Um, although I've been, <laughs> I've let it get a little carried away over the last four weeks and my weight has gone from like low one nineties to high one nineties in a month. And so there's like certainly a part of me that really wants to mini cut right now, just cause it is getting a little carried away. Um, but I'm going to do my best to at least stay on the higher side of maintenance as an average. So I may have like a couple of like down days throughout the week, uh, but make sure to kind of keep the, the food at least at a maintenance plus as a general average throughout the week. I think, I think both outcomes are like a combination of interesting and depressing. Like it would be great if nothing happened and it would be awful if nothing happened. Like it'd yeah, be great totally. if nothing happened. Cause you're like, wow, maintenance volume means, you know, just doing enough like the elbow flexion extension work I get from presses and pulls is, is maintenance volume for my arm. Like how amazing is that for me long-term? Um, yeah. If your left arm, it, like that's on one side of your right arm doesn't shrink, amazing. If your left arm doesn't grow, fucking depressing <laughs> as shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it kind of makes me wonder like, like, should I just reduce all volume everywhere? Like, should I just do like one or two sets of every movement that I'm doing and just kind of just accept that I'm 40 years old and I've been training 25 years and there just like, isn't much more growth to be had, which is like super, super depressing, but also completely amazing for like other aspects of life and like getting into other okay, things. And totally. so, so there's like, there's certainly, there's a lot of emotions floating around here. Totally a, a wonderful, like intersection of depressing and awesome. Like it is, I totally, yeah. I feel that, that I feel that hundred percent. I actually was feeling that way about my own training where I was like, I was like, hmm, like, unless I'm like, like things, if they are happening over the last couple of years, which I've not spent any of that time in a surplus, uh, let's say two years, if things are happening, they're happening at a microscopic rate. And if nothing's happening, how do I feel about that? I feel great because honestly, the, my training feels um, just very sustainable. I could do this forever. And if, and and chances are, I, could, I think I could probably do less if the goal was to maintain. But at the same time, it's like, well, that would be depressing. But in the same time, that would be awesome because do I need to get much bigger? No, I would train anyway, even if it meant no more growth, just for the health benefits. Um, yeah, do I think your left arm will get bigger over six months having spent any of that time in a surplus? I, I do. The, the, there are just so many places to go down. Do I think it will be by an amount you can see and detect? No, I don't. So I think your, your end result, if it's like a mirror measurement, will be no, it will be the same. If it's like a muscle biopsy, I think it will grow. But is a muscle biopsy like just at that one point in time the same? Because maybe there's more glycogen in there. I don't know how that affects a muscle biopsy. It would be, yeah, um, yeah man. I, I'm interested to see. I mean, obviously I'm sure you took an extensive amount of pictures or whatever, like you just, or, or is it more of just like, hey, if I, it's not enough to notice, I shouldn't need extensive pictures to figure it out. So I have two forms of measurement and I, I'm not using pictures. Um, cool. although I do have videos of sure. my training yep. every day that your, I can go reference. 
Dexa. Or- so I, I, I measured my arms with literally like a shoestring type thing, like one of those cloth tape measures. Um, and it was 17 inches on the right and 16 and three quarters on the left. I measured three times each arm just to be sure that it was right. So 17 and 16.75 are going to be what I'm going to go with there. And then I also have a DEXA from six weeks before I started the experiment. Um, the only confounding issue with the DEXA is that I was 193 pounds. And so for me to get back now to 193 pounds, I would have to go into a deficit, um, which could fuck the whole experiment up. Uh, so I'm not hundred percent sure how to use that data, but they do do the unilateral measurements. And so on that DEXA at 193 pounds, I had 12.2 pounds of muscle in my right arm and 11.8 pounds of muscle in my left arm. So we could just look at that ratio. And then if I do another DEXA at 200 pounds body weight, it could be 12.5 and 12.3. And then I would look at that and be like, oh, look, like that's awesome. Or whatever it ends up yeah. being, you know, I can kind of figure it out from there. That's how you'd have to, you'd have to do it. The, the secondary question of will my arm grow would require you to be the same size, but the ratio of will my left arm grow more than my right arm grows? If my whole yeah. body grows, then then I think that you could, that's a really still a good takeaway. Uh, I'm fascinated to see what happens. Kudos to you, man, because there's, you know, the confounding variable for your enjoyment level of this is maybe your, this is like, you know what I'm saying? Like you, you, I first saw this, I was like, wow, he's really sacrificing like um, potentially, you know, six months of arm growth uh, on one side, but the counter might be that you're gonna do this with this with the smaller side. And in like worst case, you're like fixing an asymmetry, which I'm sure you don't really give a shit about, but it's the silver lining thing. That's like, hey, I'm not really wasting it. You know, like, um, yeah, that's cool. I definitely want to get you back on here. We'll talk about that. I have a podcast coming out about my update with my with my experiment. I'm I'm closing in on the end of Mesocycle Four, and things have had to change, and the reasonings behind them are just not surprising at all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I've been following along closely. I listened to the last update that you did on it, so um, I'm also very uh, intrigued to follow your journey as well. I mean, these experiments, I kind of feel like it's Dave McConey in my ear for the last two years. So some of this might just be uh, the reflection of that, but I really feel like at this point of the training journey where not much is changing, I'm the perfect candidate to actually do these N of one experiments to be like, Hey, if anything is going to work at all, if it's going to work on me, then, then it it can be extrapolated out, you know, to other people. So, and then if not, you know, you have the, the other side of the coin where there's some good and some bad that come with that. So. Cool, man. We both got to run. I appreciate you coming on. I'll, I'll tag in everything when it comes out. If you don't follow Brian already, go give him a follow on Instagram, but living under a rock at this point. But um, anything else that you got coming up that you want to drop? New cycles and Paragon starting 1024. This will probably come out after that, but we're doing a shoulders and quads uh, focus for, for this next cycle and then hams and arms after that. So um, should be fun to kind of do some unique stuff. But yeah, thanks for having me on, dude. Sounds good, man. Pleasure as always. See you, bro. Yep. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Where Optimal Meets Practical. If you liked the episode, it would mean the world to me if you posted a screenshot to your social media or left a five-star review on iTunes. That stuff really helps. If you ever want to get in touch with me, just shoot me a DM on Instagram, at Jordan Lips Fitness. I'm always around to chat. Thanks, guys. Have a good one.